Uh, I thought it would be a good thing to, to ask the question, what is discipleship? And um, this little book, if you guys want one, Manny, I think, got some for people in the church, what, two years ago? Like right when we first started meeting? I think you bought a handful, but there was only maybe five of you that, that needed one. So uh, this little book, it's, it's a nine-mark book. They, they actually started out with nine books. It was nine marks of a healthy church. This little book on discipling is probably one of the best little books on discipling that I've read. As far as just, it's clear, it's concise, it's a lot of Bible, it's just well put together. It's not everything on discipleship, but it's definitely a good primer. If you guys want one, let us know. We'll just get some for the church. So if you guys end up wanting one of these copies, let me or Manny know at the end. If we get, you know, at least a couple of you wanting one, we'll order some this weekend and then we'll get some for the church. So this little book, Discipling by Nine Marks, is, is a pretty helpful book in that. So, um, so with the question, what is discipleship? I think it's a good, uh, I think it's a good season in our life to ask that question for a number of reasons. One is I think we're currently doing it as a church, which is a good thing. Um, if you guys remember or don't remember, if you weren't here yet, we actually had a series within the church where we, we went through six things that we want the church to be about. And one of those things we want the church to be about is discipleship. You know, so what do we want the culture of the church to be? There's a number of things. We want prayer and we want you know, sound doctrine, and we want evangelism. And another one of those things is discipleship. We want the church to be marked out as a discipling church. And uh, I do feel that as we have met over the, the number of years, we have been true to that um, desire. You know, obviously not perfect in that desire, but true to that desire. And I, I think as we've done that now the last couple of years, it's, it's kind of like with other things in the church, um, Sometimes there's not a need when the church begins and everyone's new and you're teaching them everything, every little church distinctive and why we do this and why we do that, because you're just enculturating people. Uh, but just like, you know, we've had to do the one on head coverings and we've had to do the one on modesty. Uh, there comes a time where you need some kind of formal teaching or uh, instruction on those issues. And I think discipleship is probably one of those too. We've modeled that i think in the church to the best of our ability we want to continue to model it we want to grow in it but we really haven't had any like teaching on what discipleship ought to look like from the bible and what we want to try to imitate here so as i was we were thinking about what to do next we thought this would be a good time to do this and, and another part too is i think almost everybody in here is in a discipleship group i mean even some of you boys um i know meet with uh you guys meet together at Nick's house and you bring your boys. I mean, that's a, that's a great place for us to be as a church, to be doing something like that. So I think it would be good for us to, to, to be able to cover that a little bit more formally and in-depth in the Scripture, what that is, because we're already doing it. And I think in doing that, there's one thing I want out of this is... Uh, a good mark of a healthy church, this is my own mark of a healthy church, is you should know where you're at as a church and then where you're going. Uh, there's the proverb of uh, take well to, to consider the condition of your flock. And I, like, like I said before, I, I think our condition is, by God's grace, good. I think we're in a good spot. Uh, but it's good to be able to look and, and see where we're at, where we want to go. And one of the ways I think we can continue to grow is to 
have some kind of teaching on this. So um, where we are and where we want to be is uh, a good thing to ask. And, you know, as the, as the church began and we entered into discipleship and we've been doing it over the years, um, it, it kind of happened in a weird way, too. Uh, you know, for most of you, you guys were new, new converts or were converted after coming here. And we immediately had to jump into discipling. And it was, there, there, there was not a lot of extra people who could then come in and disciple others as you know, other families have come into the church. And, and so with that is we've, we, we had really desired from the beginning that with discipleship, we would really have a model of one-on-one discipleship where you know, me and Sergio or Manny and you know, Nick or you know, Jessica and Louise would be able to come side by side with one another just living life together and discipleship to take place in a context of just naturally being together, right? Um, and we, that's what we kind of wanted the discipleship process to be because ultimately I think that's what you, you tend to see in the scripture as being held out as the discipleship process. Uh, but we're just not able to do that to some extent. And that's not a bad thing. We're just, we're a very young church with lots of young members, lots of younger Christians. And we are currently in just in a different season where we're growing and we're praying and we're studying and we're learning so that we can begin to do that. And that's not a bad thing at all. Uh, but that's obviously different than what would be the ideal model of having people who can disciple and then are being discipled and then that thing multiplies and continues and grows. So as I think about where we want to be as a church, that is where we ultimately want to be. We want to be someone new comes through that door, someone's converted in the church, um, someone brings in their family to the church, they're very new uh, Christians, they're very young in their faith, or you know maybe they're just very immature in their faith and they're trying to grow. The goal would be to, all right, let's get you plugged in with somebody. Let's just, let's see where the, a good fit for you is to be with someone who you can walk alongside with and learn from. Uh, and so that, that's been our desire from the beginning. And I, I think this will kind of help, uh, one, show I think the biblical background to that, and then two, some of the practical ways we can continue in our own discipleship groups now uh, to, to continue to grow and then to move towards that ultimate end where, you know, we're not meeting with three or four or five or six of you. Um, many of you are meeting one-on-one with somebody or you're meeting, you know, with two, you know, you're, you're meeting in much smaller groups uh, with the ability to really pour in to each other in your life. So that's kind of the trajectory and uh, ultimately why I wanted to do this. So let's, let's answer the question. And then we'll get into um, we'll get into really the, the meat of this kind of halfway through. So I'm gonna make this very basic. This is some of this you guys are already gonna know. So I'm gonna try to spare going through all the biblical theology of discipleship. I think everybody here is on board with that. I think I wouldn't be saying anything new and talking about that. What I really want to get to is how do we do it? What does the Bible say discipleship looks like? And how does discipleship um, actually get carried out amongst different people within the church, amongst you know girls and boys and men and women and husbands and wives and fathers and you know all, all these different groups that we have in here. Everyone has some kind of different stage in their life. What does discipleship look like in all of those areas? And so that'll be kind of uh, the meat of this. But before we get there, I want to co- cover a few things for you guys. I actually want to ask the question, what is discipleship? <laughs> So make sure we actually have some kind of clear definition as to what discipleship actually is. 
And then I want us to think about the why. Okay, what is it? Then why do we do it? You know, why do we do discipleship? And then really, how do we do it? And then what are some ways this is going to work out in different groups and different people in the church? So that's where we're going to go. Do you guys have questions? I got a lot of verses for us to read too. So I'm going to ask for reading. So you guys have some Bibles ready to go. But if we have questions along the way, you guys can, you know, please feel free to interrupt, raise your hand, and we can, we can talk about it. So here's this first section. What is discipleship? So I kind of have the, the main verse for this, Matthew 28, 18. Uh, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. All right, so there's kind of like the key verse. Jesus resurrects, is about to ascend, and his commission to the church is to make disciples. <laughs> so that, that to me automatically puts discipleship, it should, at least in my mind, put discipleship at the top of every Christian's board. So if we're thinking about anything else that the church does, discipleship ought to be up there uh, in top priorities for what we do as a church because that is what Jesus wants us to go and actually do. It's not just to proclaim the gospel, which you have to do to make disciples. It's not just to baptize, which you have to do to bring people into the church. And it's not just to teach, which you have to do for disciples, but it's actually to make disciples so that they end up doing what that Jesus says after that, teaching them to obey. So that's, that's really important. So I would say this, at the core of discipleship then, a disciple is somebody, this is, I'm going to give a very simple definition of a disciple. A disciple is someone who is a follower of someone else. <laughs> That's discipleship. At its, at its most fundamental root, discipleship is you are a follower of someone else in what they do, in what they say, in how they think, in how they act, and how they speak in, in, in all areas of their life. You are a follower of somebody. And it is the one who follows in the teaching and the footsteps and example of another that they recognize themselves to be a disciple of a disciple-er. If we could, you know, if you put that in word, they like always try to get you to correct that in word. It's very obnoxious. You can add it to your dictionary. I just found that out. But so you recognize that is the, the one who follows is the disciple because they recognize this person has something to either teach me or impart to me or give to me through their words or through their example. So, uh, we could say this. A Christian, therefore, for all of us, right? If, so, if that's what a disciple is, then a Christian would be this. A Christian at their most fundamental core is a disciple or a follower of Jesus Christ, right? We're, we're following, we're walking in the footsteps of Christ and this is the fundamental reality of the Christian church based upon Matthew chapter 28. But what's important about this, and we can forget about this too, it's not just the reality of the church's mission, which is in Matthew 28, but it's actually at the reality of who you are as a Christian, right? Um, does someone have Mark 8.34 they could read? Mark 8.34. <clears throat> Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Okay, 
So not only is it the church's mission to be a discipling people, actually at the fundamental reality of even existing and being a Christian is that you are and you are called to, right? It's your identity. It's actually who you are. You are a disciple of Christ and it's the thing you're called to walk in, right? Who picks up the cross of Jesus Christ? A disciple. And then who takes that cross and bears the weight of it? A disciple. So there's a reality of identity with Jesus in the cross. I am his disciple. I am a disciple and I am going to be called into discipleship following after Jesus Christ. And that's very important because there's, there's no other way to think about your Christian life. And this has really kind of gotten screwy uh, in the church in America. There was a a book a number of years ago about, um, man, what was that book called? Someone might know it, but it was something, it was something premised along the lines of like, uh, don't be a fan, be a follower kind of idea. That actually may have been the book, fan or follower. Yeah, something like that. You know what I'm talking about? And, and, the whole, and this was huge. When, when I, I was a brand new Christian, I'm 19, I'm, I'm in a college ministry. This book was on fire. Uh, I'm, and I'm not trying to date myself. I'm just telling you when it was popular. Um, I'm, I'm young. Uh, the, <laughs> but this book was like, it, it was one of like the top books everyone wanted to read. And the whole premise of the book, because I read it, was, you know, there's Christians who are just fans sitting on the sidelines, on the bleachers. And what we need to do is turn Christians into followers. That's fundamentally false. There is no dichotomy in the scripture. There's no separation in the scripture of being a Christian and being a, well, they say follower, but another word for follower is simply a disciple. There's no category difference, and we have got to get that clear. If you are a Christian, it is your identity and it is your calling. It is not just your mission as a Christian to disciple others. It is your fundamental reality and your fundamental mission in your life to be discipled by Jesus Christ. That's just plain simple. There's no other way. It's like what Jesus says. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot be a fan of his and then a follower of something else. You are either a follower and a fan of Jesus, or you are neither of the two. And that's very important for us. So that would be a a first one. What is discipleship, right? We are followers. We walk after Jesus Christ. That's what we do. Second is the Christian's life and mission is one of making disciples. And this gets to the that other half that uh, we've been emphasizing there in Matthew is uh, someone else has put it, and I think it may have been Mark Dever in this book, is the Christian life is one of discipling life. That, I mean, not only do you live and breathe discipleship for yourself, but in light of living as a disciple, it's something you begin to naturally do. You are a discipling disciple. It it, It is a multiplication process. It is something by which the Christian lives out his life and he begins to impart things to others. And once again, I think Jesus' clear intention for all of us is stated right there in Matthew 28. The way we are to make disciples is to baptize and to teach others, and this is the most crucial part, in the way of obedience. The, The goal of Christian discipleship is to not simply mark someone off as a Christian or give them doctrine. It is to teach them in the way they ought to go for their obedience, right? Some, some of your translations probably say observe. I don't think that's the best word there. It should say obey. The NET translate that, translates the word as obey, and it's a much more forceful connotation. It's not just some ritual observance. This is 
heart-wrought obedience. This is someone who looks at the Christian faith. And one way you could translate this of obedience in Matthew 28 is keeping or guarding the faith. Which, if you go back to the Old Testament, is what a priest does. So this is somebody who takes the Christian faith and they are obeying it. They are keeping it and they are guarding it for themselves. And this is what Christian discipleship should be. So, wrap that up. What is discipleship then? Christian life and maturity is, I think, marked by this fundamental reality. That we, one, are identified in our persons as disciples. Two, we are currently being discipled as a follower of Jesus Christ. And three, we go out and we disciples others in the way of obedience. Pretty simple, right? Any, is any questions about that? I mean, that's, that's very cut and dry. Now, I know that sounds like we all probably like, yep, that's true, biblical. But, you know, sometimes until you state something simple, it's kind of clouded, right? And we just need clarity on that. That is what it means to be a disciple. That is what discipleship is. You're a follower in your identity and practice, and you are making followers of Jesus Christ. That is the heart of discipleship. So, second thing then is why discipleship? All right. So, why discipleship? Um, ultimately, we would I would say this: discipleship is going to happen to you guys, whether or not you want it or not. <laughs> you will be discipled in the way of something, and this gets into something that we have really stressed over in sermons and meeting with you guys and even in our ministry at the abortion clinic or even on the street, you know, going out and taking the gospel is, what have we learned about human beings? Is anybody neutral in this world? Brethren, no. Nobody is neutral in this world. Everyone has a God. Everyone has a religion. Everyone has a set of commands and markers that they identify and follow with. And so we need to be very cautious as not only... What are we to be as disciples? But why is it so important? Because ultimately, you're being discipled by something. You are being taught and trained in somebody's way. And we want to be a people who are not passive as Christians and just being discipled in whatever way seems to pass, you know, our, or across our path. But rather, we are intentional in going, I know the path, and that is the path of obedience that I want to follow. It's Jesus Christ's path. So, uh, whether or not you want to pursue that, you will be pursued. And whether you want it for good or not, it'll either be for your good or it'll be for your ill. And, and we need to be very, very aware of that. You're going to be influenced. You're going to be shaped. You're going to be molded by something. And if you, in turn, uh, avoid Christian discipleship, uh, you can guarantee that what's going to step in its place is, is going to be something that is, is going to ruin you as a Christian. That's just... Uh, that's just going to be uh, the reality. So the question would remain for us then it would be this. Who and what will disciple us and what will we disciple somebody in? And that's another crucial question to think of. How you get discipled either by Christ and by the Word and by the Spirit or by something else will in turn affect how you disciple others, right? Uh, how your kids are going to pick up on what a Christian is supposed to be like will be direct influence on how you act and what you're being discipled in, right? If a father is discipled in his anger and, and, he, and he doesn't put the, 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 he doesn't crack the whip on that anger, well, that anger is going to have, as, as uh, God says to Cain, it's going to have dominion over you. And then your kids are going to see, oh, that's what a Christian's like, right? And how many, you know, I hate to watch them because it, you know, makes Tresemite Christianity and Christ look bad, but how many 
you know, documentaries do you put on where someone is like not in the faith anymore or they grew up Christian and all they have to do is talk about how bad it was to watch their parents grow up as hypocrites. And you know what? As much as I don't like watching some of that stuff, there's got to be a level of truth to it. There's got to be an ounce of truth to that is people were discipled in the way and they were careless in how they were being discipled. And you know what? They ended up discipling their family to say Christianity really ain't that good. And they discipled their kids in something. So we need to know that when Christ, think about this, when Christ gives the Great Commission and then calls us as disciples to walk in the way, He's doing so with the highest degree of intentionality, right? Jesus knows this. He's intentional in what He did. He he, and and, we, and we, we get this from Jesus, right? This is very important. When we look at what Jesus does in discipling himself, Jesus doesn't just start choosing his disciples on a whim, right? Jesus doesn't just choose the first 12 people. He's like, you know what? All right, I got the Spirit, and now first 12 people to walk by me are my next 12 disciples. Uh, that's not how Jesus did it. Jesus is very intentional in the way of picking out disciples. Jesus discipled because in his mind, it was a fundamental reality of shaping others into what? His image. And, and, and here's a couple of verses that I want to give you guys. So you get this idea in first the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 7, if someone wants to flip to that. And then we also get this idea of Jesus' intentionality here in Mark 3, 13 to 14, if someone wants to turn there. So once you get the Deuteronomy one, just read that one, and then uh, whoever has Mark, you read it after the Deuteronomy one. Deuteronomy 6, 6 to 7, and Mark 3, 13 to 14. All right. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in the house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Right. Okay, so... And, and think about that. What is emphasized in that call in Deuteronomy? What ought to be the principal reality for the Israelites? Teach. Right. Teaching what? The word. That's right. Commands the word. This is, yes, God's word coming to the people. Hero Israel, my word. That's what they're to, I mean, literally he's saying all of life, the word ought to be what directs you, guides you, picks you up, lays you down, teaches your children, binds you hand, foot, all those different things. And we know Jesus himself is, John says, is the embodiment of this very word, the very word of God made flesh. And so, uh, what is, what's he doing, right? And and, and what, let's let's have someone read Mark 3 and then ask ourselves, what is Jesus doing in Mark 3? What's he doing? So someone read that. Mark 3, 13 to 14. And he went up on the mountain and called to the, to him those who he, who he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. Okay. Now listen, I texted this to Manny and Nick today because I'm, I'm guilty of something. Mark is like my... He always gets the short end of the stick in my gospel readings, right? I love Matthew, love Matthew to death. It's probably my favorite. And then Luke is like pretty up there now. John's always been up there because of just how profoundly mind-blowing John is the whole way through. Mark is just like, man, Mark. Mark just is short. Uh, 
No one really writes about Mark's gospel all the time. I mean, Mark really gets a short and sick, but Mark is the only one who puts it like that of Jesus choosing out his disciples. I mean, what, what did it say about him choosing them? Read, read that little part there just at 13. Those whom he desired. I mean, brethren, listen to that. Jesus did not call these 12 by some whim of his imagination. Jesus was intentional to his core, looked at these 12. I don't know what he saw. I don't even think he needed to see anything special in them. But he saw 12 men he could take and he could teach and he could make into his own image. And he says, come with me. I mean, just... Very intentional, very purposeful, and not doing it just because, you know, whatever. I mean, he is trying to do what the Word was always meant to do throughout all the Bible. And now the Word Himself is picking out men and making them into His own image. So, you, you, and, and we get this repeated in, in the New Testament too. So, you guys can think of how Paul acts towards Timothy is a really good example in the book of Acts. He brings him alongside him, and, 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 and alongside himself, Paul does, brings Timothy. He brings him alongside him and some of his other travelers and his companions, and this is what he says about Timothy. He says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's 2 Timothy 2, and then this is a little further in chapter 3. You, however, speaking of Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me. I mean, you want to talk about the importance of why discipleship mattered is just boiled down there in those verses. Paul sought to bring Timothy along with him in Acts 16 and then by the time he's writing to Timothy, and they are now separated from one another, he calls him his son. And he says, you followed in my teaching and in everything. It's like Timothy literally became a mini Paul. You imitated me in everything in my life, even down to my sufferings, even down to my life and my faith and my patience and my love. I mean, brother, how many, how many men or women in your life, in your Christian life, could you say that about? I mean, I can't. I, I, I didn't grow up with anybody in the Christian faith where I could go, that's my father in the faith. I mean, I, I, I know that man's life. I know his teaching. Oh, I know his conduct. I know that man's faith. I know his life. I know how he's persevered. I know how he treated his family. And I know that even in the deepest, darkest points of the night where he's by himself, he is an upright man. And, and I'm not doing that to discourage us, brother. I'm just trying to get us to see why discipleship? Because of that. That was the means by which Jesus raised up 12 fishermen and tax collectors and zealots to go out and flip the world upside down. And it's the way that Paul took someone like little old young Timothy, who was a babe compared to some other people, and he charged him and trusted him with the faith. I mean, that's the importance of discipleship right there. It's so that that process would continue and people would follow after Jesus Christ. So, if you're not convinced on the why, I don't have anything else. So, let's kind of get into the heart of this. So, there's the what of discipleship. There's the why of discipleship. Now, here's the how. 
So I think Paul kind of describes this process with one verse for us. Once again, I'm trying to keep this extremely simple because I think it is simple. Um, one thing that was very frustrating for me over the years and really has not gained much clarity for me until maybe the last year or two years being a part of this church, having to really think how to disciple the church itself, um, is discipleship has been presented like a uh, calculus problem in math for the church to figure out. It's like, well, what model of discipleship do we want to do? Do we want to do this model, this model? There's this book and there's this way to do it. There's this way to do church to disciple people. There's this way to bring in programs to disciple people. And it's just... It just becomes like, it becomes like an end times chart on a, on a chalkboard. You know, it's like no one knows where the line's going. No one knows, you know, anything about what's going on. It's just this big bundle of mess on what discipleship is. And the Bible just says that discipleship is just fundamentally simple. It's just at, at its core, it's just fundamentally simple. And how we do that is fundamentally simple. So here's what Paul says in here in Colossians 1.28. Speaking of Christ, he says, Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. All right, so the warning and the teaching thing, this is a parallel thought, warning, teaching. This is the, the whole of teaching, of rebuking, correcting, training up in righteousness through the word, through teaching. But you would think, so, you know, we would conclude to teach somebody and to make them theological giants. No, it's not how Paul says that. There's a goal, here's a clause right here, in order that we may present everyone what? Mature in Christ. So there's a twofold way of how we disciple teaching and what I would say is presenting, right? Teach, shape, mold, instruct, warn, correct, rebuke, exhort, mold that person, and then present them. Um, some, a, a mature work in my hands, I think is how Paul is saying this. And this is important because discipleship, and I'm not, I'm not trying to... Um, I'm not trying to skirt past the reality that as you begin to do this, one, if you're being discipled, and two, in the future, as you disciple someone else, it's not always, uh, you're like, well, life comes at you, and it's not always like, okay, it's just yes and no, yes and no, yes and no, and that's true. But with all the ins and outs of discipleship, brethren, when it's distilled down to its essence, it's this. Here's what is discipleship for your life and for someone else in your life is this, teaching and presenting teaching and presenting, showing somebody in the way, presenting them as a gift of maturity to God. And this means that discipleship is to teach and to show others how to be a Christian. That's how it's done. You teach somebody how to be a Christian. That, that is how to be like Christ, that they would what? Grow up into maturity and that they would be presented. And it's very interesting how Paul puts that, right? To be presented, it's like, it's, it's like Paul is working on a project and then the final thing is going to, it's, you know, it's like when Apple gets up and they present their phone or a car company presents their new car. It's like, here's everything we've been working on. We put all this time, this toil, lots of money behind the scenes no one knows about, you know, all this time and toil. And then here's the final product. You know, they take the, you know, the, the, whatever the thing would be. I'm like blanking on a very simple word right now. The veil. veil. Yeah, there we go. Veil seems kind of like a weird word to the curtain. You know, the silky thing. That thing. I don't know what the, anyway, if someone thinks of the word, you can look, Google that. Um, when you think about that, he says to present them. Like Paul is, Paul is, Paul's, he says right after that too, this is what he labor and toils for. 
He is teaching and warning and admonishing. And I would say that teaching is a lot more than just, you know, Jesus is God, uh, Jesus died for sins, died for sinners, repent, believe the gospel. I think it's, he's talking a lot more teaching than just verbal teaching. And then he's going, and then I, I present them. I'm done. My, my job is done. I've, I've matured them in Christ. Christ, there you go. Mature, disciple, here's the finished product. Now, obviously, in one sense, you're not finished until you die. Go to heaven, right? And so, a <laughs> little, little caveat there. But you get what I'm saying, right? Paul would have been able to look at Timothy and say, Timothy, my son, I'm trusting you the faith, man. <laughs> We've, we did it. You know, like, we ran together. My race is ending. Timothy, you're a young man in the faith. You don't let people look down on you. You got a race to run still. My son, here you go. And I, just, I love that imagery. It's a very beautiful imagery. Just, it's, it's like a good movie right there. Just like work is done. Here we go, presenting this purpose. So here is the goal then at the end of the process of discipleship of how we ought to disciple, right? We ought to be able to say, here's the disciple, mature in Christ. So the how is I'm teaching, I'm forming, I'm telling you, here is how you be a Christian. And then at the end of the day, I go, here is the disciple, mature in Christ. And I move on. And I go back to the sidelines. I go back into the background and Christ takes center stage and that person goes and runs their own race. And brethren, I want us to be able to do that and for that person and for us to be somebody who could say, I was matured because of that. I, I am like Christ because of that. So question then is because, okay, if, that, if that's the basic to the how, teaching, presenting, teaching, presenting, how do we carry it out? So, let me offer uh, a few general principles, and then I want to begin to address, I think, groups of people in our church. And I don't mean groups like we got the bad group and the okay group and the really good group, because you all would have sat different. Um, but really just different stages and areas. And everyone's, you know, I mean, I know we're, we're pretty much a young church uh, for the most part, but... Nevertheless, we have different stages. So how are we going to carry this out? So let me give you guys a few brief principles on the how, and then I want to focus on the specific areas. So here's the first one. And these, like, these are general principles, but look, hear me out on this. Here's where the stumbling blocks begin. Because everybody can amen the first two and a half things we just talked about. The what, the why, that is the how, right? Teaching, presenting, teaching, presenting. And here come the stumbling blocks, right? And this is... This is where you enter into that second part of discipleship where you've identified as a disciple and now you're carrying your cross. And now you're going to feel kind of the weight of discipleship a little bit. So here's the first one. This seems simple. But discipleship, discipling begins by initiation. <laughs> right? To disciple or be discipled has to begin by initiation. So to put that... In very simple terms, that means discipleship means busting out of a shell. And we all have one to some extent. I don't care how talkative you are or how untalkative you are. Everybody has one when it comes to this. Because even people who like to talk often don't like to talk about how they need to grow. <laughs> I mean, if you like to talk, you just like to talk about things. Not, man, I really need to grow in this. I'm not doing well in that. Would you disciple me? That's not our natural inclination as people often. And so we need the discipling process, how we ought to do it. We need to begin by being an intentional people and initiating this discipleship, right? 
This means that intentionality in seeking either discipleship or to be discipling somebody must be met with an active response from you, which means it must be done from you going, I'm going to go up to this person and I'm going to open my mouth and initiate this you know, relationship or this you know, need for discipleship. And now I'll say this. I think this is ideally done by simply coming alongside of somebody, right? You guys are hanging out in the church all the time. I mean, we met this week on Wednesday. We met today. We're going to see each other uh, on Sunday. I mean, we see each other a lot. We have, we have a lot of things that go on. We see each other a lot. So ideally, it would, it would be as simple as coming alongside somebody in the church. You're walking with them. You're just talking about them. You know their life. You know everything that's going on. And you're starting to hear some of the things that they're struggling in or needing to grow in. You're starting to visualize and observe like, okay, like I'm seeing this and I'm seeing this. And you walk alongside of them and then you just begin to impart things. Something natural, you know. It's like if, uh, you know, if I spend the next few years wanting to impart things to Jackson, I mean, yeah, are there formal times where I have to sit my son down and say, son... This is what we do for this, or this is how we think about this. But no, what, where's, where's the majority of our kids' learning going to come from? It's going to just be, you're just, all right, it's 8 o'clock. you got to wake up, right? you got to get up. you got to brush your teeth. you got to get up. you got to eat. you got to get up do your schoolwork. I mean, that's, that is the natural process of how somebody grows up in life is just you come alongside them, you walk with them, you get to know them, and then you begin to impart things to them. You begin to teach them things. You begin to imitate things for them. So I would say discipleship doesn't need to be some kind of really formal process where, I mean, I've experienced this in the church. It's like, if you want to be discipled, well, email the church secretary, and then the church secretary will send you a discipleship sign-up list, and you'll write your name on the discipleship sign-up list for all the men, and then you'll get a call from the secretary on who you're supposed to meet. They'll give you their number, which is so weird, and then you'll meet up with them for the first time after all this conversation, and you have not once, like had any contact with them, and then you realize you got placed with somebody who is no further along in the Christian faith than you. And in fact, you're like, man, I really feel like I could disciple this person, but I got put in a discipleship you know, relationship just because I signed up for one. And brethren, that's, that's obviously an extreme, but that's often how these things get played out in the church. And so um, what I'm not trying to what I'm not trying to indicate by saying be initiating in discipleship is some kind of uber formal process like that. Um, ideally, we want people to simply walk together in the faith, come and see either the need to be met or the need in your own life to be taught, and then have somebody teach you or to be the one who shows the example in life conduct for somebody to learn. Now, just like there's always an ideal, right? Jesus never is like, you know, destroying ideals for the sake of formality or practicality. But, brethren, Jesus himself said he desired certain men and then he went and got them. So, as much as I don't want it to be some formal process where it's clanky and awkward and sometimes just not a helpful discipleship process at all, this doesn't remove some kind of level of formality. Jesus went out and picked every 12, like one of his 12 disciples. And then Jesus, out of the crowds who were following him, told them, you 12 come to me, I'm going to make you apostles, and now you're going to be my messengers, right? He was, and then he was very, I mean, 
When the crowds left, who did remain with him? Who did he teach? Who did he walk with? What three did he pull away from out of the twelve? Jesus was very intentional and somewhat formal in, in establishing that. So we can't avoid all of the formality. And uh, Jesus himself didn't. So um, I, I, I want us to just kind of see, like, this, this first point is, you may have to initiate something through something that's a little bit awkward. Like, I just have to open up my mouth and say something. But it can also be just as simple as, Hang around the church. Hang around people, right? It's, you know, we talked about this. What's the first step in growing up in the life and the body of the church? Show up. <laughs> I mean, people, people don't want to hear that. They want like a really practical one. But hey, if you don't show up, and I'm not talking about, you know, for the songs and the sermon tomorrow. That's good. That's biblical. Uh, but if you don't stay around to talk to Manny afterwards about how you thought the word hit you or applied to you afterwards, discipleship's not happening at least not in the fullest sense that it could possibly happen. And the same thing with us. You know, we could see each other and then wave bye to each other the same way we wave to each other as we walked in. And if there's not level of uh, intentionality in doing that, then it's just, it's not going to happen. But there has got to be some level of formality in us recognizing this person can teach me something or I, I, can, I can pour into this person in this area and, and making that kind of thing happen. So... And once again, that passage there in Mark 13, Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. Brethren, intentional and yet formal. Initiating and yet just living life right alongside his disciples. So we, this leads to the second one, which is going to follow right after this one. And this would be, you must be willing. <laughs> uh, you have to be willing to want to do this, right? It, it's... It, it's, not, it's not good enough to only agree that discipleship's important, but uh, one, that you actually think you need it and that you're willing to do it or that you're willing to disciple somebody, right? It, it wouldn't do us any good if we're, someone's just simply not willing to do that. That person we want to follow or that person we want to impart something to, we need to know that person actually wants to hear from me and that, that person actually wants to pour into me, right? If you don't have that, you don't, I mean, you may see something someone could teach you and they don't want to teach you it. Well, that's not a good recipe or situation for discipleship and vice versa. If you want to, you know, bring someone along and walk alongside of them and they really have no interest in really what you have to say or your counsel or your conduct or your life or your teaching, it's like, that does no good either. That's not discipleship. That's just formality. So it doesn't look good to disciple someone or to be discipled uh, with somebody who has no interest in following or being followed. So we need, we need to be a people convinced in our minds that we are willing to do this. And this means both ways. I'm not just talking about are you willing to you know, humble yourself and be discipled, but rather than I honestly think the harder thing would be to try to disciple somebody else. I mean, there's a lot more that goes into doing that than simply someone coming along and teaching you. Uh, so we need to be a people who say we are willing to do this. And this is just going to call for a level of humility in the church that we all ought to uh, display. Is that we recognize we are not what we ought to be right now. And we can get there through the means by which God has given us. And that's discipleship. So, because um, if not, brethren, this is... I mean, just to put it bluntly, 
What you got when someone's not interested in following or being followed is what I call a big waste of time. I mean, that's just what it is. Let's just be honest. It's just, let's not dance around it. It's just a big waste of time. Let's not waste each other's time. <laughs> it's, that's just what it is. So rather, I want us to, to forego kind of the, that pessimism, that negativity, and to embrace something that says we ought to, not just formally, we ought to cultivate, right? If, if we're a church planting seed in the ground of what fruit we want in the church, brethren, lay out some good, you know, like I just did. I just put, you know, uh, it? the dirt. Man, I'm just blanking on it. Soil, good gracious. I am spacing on some words. Pot it, put some soil in the pots and put some seeds in there and we put some water in there. We're expecting that those things are going to come up, hopefully, and grow out of those places. But then we want to cultivate that kind of mentality in our church. We are going to do this by God's grace of planting the seeds of humility and planting seeds for discipleship and cultivating a culture of one of humility, which leads to a culture of discipleship within the church. We've got to say, we're going to do this. Why? Because the king has said, son, hear my voice. And the fool is the one who despises wisdom and knowledge. And we don't want to be a fool. We want to be a good son. We want to rule well. We want to be a good king. So how this gets carried out then is in, I think, a number of different ways. And the first thing we can think of is this. This is the third general principle. Discipleship typically gets carried out in teaching. Now, I want to caveat using that word teaching. We often think of teaching and you think about what I'm doing right now, right? I'm just, I'm talking, you're absorbing. I'm talking and you're absorbing. And typically it's doctrine. And that's good. That is part of the discipleship process. Um, but that teaching has a lot more to do than simply uh, doctrinal issues or uh, things related to scripture as far as, you know, things we confess in the faith. This has to do with teaching in a, on a whole holistic level of doctrine, of life, of example, of word, of deed, all those different things. So discipleship, though, primarily and fundamentally is this. It is teaching of one another and teaching someone who does not know or lacks growth and maturity in different areas of their life. Now, uh, this may be theological, and that's a great place for discipleship to come in and disciple. I mean, we don't want people confessing that Jesus Christ is not God. Not good, right? Discipleship needs to happen there. But we also don't want to be a people who, where we tolerate someone in the church sleeping around with their father's wife, right? <laughs> also not good. Discipleship needs to happen in that situation. And those are both examples within the early church. So the wasn't trying to be funny. Those are just actual examples um, in the early church. So discipleship can take either one of those routes, but they typically end up taking the route of both, right? Because you think of that situation in the Corinthian church where the man is sleeping with his father's wife, and he uses a lot of really deep theology to tell them how they ought to act. And uh, Paul exhorts people all the time. So this is 1 Timothy 4.16. He says, keep a close eye or a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, right? So you watch yourself and you watch the teachings self, right? The body of Christian faith. Two things you have to watch, your doctrine and your life. Be aware of those. So discipleship, first and foremost, then, comes through the means of teaching. But second, I would say this comes also in the forms of, and I would call these subcategories of what I would call formation and correction. Formation and correction. And this would... This is where a word is helpful, but not helpful. And I would say discipline. But the reason that word is not typically helpful within our context anymore is because if I say church discipline, everyone goes, awkward. Like, you know, who's getting disciplined, right? It's like, that's not a good thing. But discipline is 
kind of a, uh, I know we say no neutrality, it's neutral depending on its context, right? If I say I'm going to discipline my body to be able to run a 5K, I am not putting myself in time out for, you know, doing something wrong. What I'm doing is I'm instructing and constructing myself through a discipline to achieve a means, right? I am, I am forming something, so I'm actually doing something positive in this. I'm actually building up something. I'm, 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 I'm forming something through discipline. So that's, you know, that's how we can think of discipline in that sense. But there's also the other one uh, where that, 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 uh, that teaching also comes in the way of what we would call correction or rebuke or sometimes exhortation where real correction and a, and a real molding needs to take place because something is starting to form or be molded in a way that it's not supposed to go. So you can have this coming in the form of formation and correction. And you kind of see this with Jesus in something as simple as this. He comes up uh, to the Sermon on the Mount, and this is what Matthew says. He says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them. And if you go read through the Sermon on the Mount, it's a mixture of both those things. He's trying to teach to form, and he's trying to teach to correct and to rebuke. So you get that too. And third, and here's the one that I want to emphasize because it's going to carry us into uh, these categories that I want us to consider uh, for the end of this. And really, I think the heart of this study and what I really, really want us to get is the church. This third one is, I believe, most important, and it's that discipleship is done by modeling the faith before someone else to imitate. Discipleship happens by imitating and modeling the faith for someone else to then model and imitate for you. That is the, the most fundamental way that discipleship happens. And I believe it's the primary key or ingredient that the Bible gives us on how we ought to either disciple someone or be discipled by somebody else. So let's consider just a few passages. Some of these we've read, some of these we haven't, but I want you to just, and I only did four because I could have spent a lot more time doing this, but um, here's a few passages where I think this principle really comes out. So if someone wants to read again, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Someone needs to read 1 Peter 2, verse 21, Hebrews 13, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Okay, whoever's got Matthew, once you're there, start reading. 18 through 20. Okay, perfect. So right there, we have that very principle embedded right there. Discipleship is primarily for the purpose and by the means of teaching so that somebody would obey. Well, brethren, how do you teach someone obedience? You show them obedience, right? 
you as a teacher not only teach them what they ought to obey, but this is a, that word right there, that obey, that is a present active verb right there. That is somebody is continually and doing it for themselves, walking and obeying in a certain way because they've been taught how to do it. Okay, so next one, 1 Peter uh, 2.21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Right. And it, that is a very simple and yet another profound one. Now, in that context, he's speaking about Christ's suffering, but no doubt in all of 1 Peter... Uh, the example that Christ gives then gets applied to how shepherds should shepherd the church, how wives should love their husbands, how husbands should love their wives. So I felt very confident in putting that one in there. For this you've been called. For this, that Christ, who also was called into the same thing you did to live for God, to follow after Him, to, to, the, to be an image bearer of God, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. I mean, think about Paul's words of the deposit of faith, and Peter just kind of uses a different language for it and says, Christ's example. Now, yeah, that would include teaching, no doubt, right? It would, it would include doctrine. But it's, it's including everything that Christ did. His example that you would follow in his steps. Okay, so Hebrews 13, 7. Okay, what two things, I think this is Paul. Sorry, I'm just throwing my cards out there. What do you think, what do you think the writer, Paul, is saying there? In her, what two li- things is he linking up there? What two ideas? Imitate. Right? Imitate. Okay, yeah. So let me, let me say this. Yes, what did you say? Yeah, word and life again. He says, remember your leaders who spoke to you the word of God. And you're thinking, okay, good. Like you spoke doctrine to them. Consider the outcome of their life, right? So listen, it's a weird logic here. He says, you remember your leaders, how they spoke to you God's word. Now consider the outcome. It's like consider the fruit of their word in their life. That's at the heart of this and imitate their faith, right? That's important. The, the, the conclusion he's wanting them to draw is the word and the the. The fruit of their word is their life. And if it's worthy of it, follow after it. Imitate that. Last one, 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I mean, I got nothing out of that one. <laughs> it doesn't get any simpler than that. Paul can look at people and say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's simple. That's discipleship. I'm doing, and listen, it, this is why this book is helpful. I, I think you guys should read this book. He goes through a number of objections in there. Because when, when, and because we, we haven't even gotten to the categories, how do we begin applying this, right? I'm just trying to get you like the basics. But if you take those, all these basic principles right here, and then you start putting them in the context of actual discipleship, different people's lives, they're going to be, brethren, listen, you will probably think this to some degree. People will come into the church and will think this. So you just listen, this will happen in the life of this church. People are going to go, that's very arrogant. You guys are an arrogant people thinking you pull someone alongside and you tell them, hey, you need to learn something. I need to show you something. I want to train you up in something. I want to grow you as a disciple. Or for someone to come to you and be like, 
hey, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing very well in this. Can, can, can you come alongside of me and show me and be like, well, brother, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not the discipler, man. I'm just, I'm just a, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. I'm just a wretched, I'm just a wretched sinner. And that's just passive pride as well. Just a, a, a passivity to what the Bible is telling us to do. Maturity actually recognizes it's mature, but it knows why it's mature. It's mature because it follows after the true example of maturity, and it is then able to say to others, follow after me as I follow after Christ. That's the way. And people are going to, people will, people are going to buck at that idea because they think that's a prideful thing. But brethren, we have just got to recognize if we want to begin, which is our last one, discipleship in our own context, we have got to believe that. And we have got to, like, and that requires, like I said, that requires humility on a grand level. Because you are, t- you are saying something about someone else is that person is a more mature person than me and they can teach something to me. Or you have to recognize I have grown in my Christian walk and that's not a prideful thing to say. And I have something to impart to somebody and that's actually my goal and mission as a Christian is to do that. That's not a prideful thing to say. And uh, we, I just, I wanted us to hear that because that, that right there, there are way many, there are way more Bible verses with that kind of language than any others when it comes to the correction and the formation of other people. And it's imitate me, imitate me, follow after me, conduct your life the way I conduct mine. Timothy, my son, live the way that I lived. Uh, and that is the primary, primary ingredient that if it is not in discipleship, the, the teaching and the doctrine and all that stuff honestly really isn't for much uh, of, um, unless it's guided in, in this, of imitating, of imitation, because ultimately that's what you've been predestined for, right? That great section in Romans, which is a heavy theological section, Romans 8, 28 through 30, the whole goal of you being fore, you know, foreknown and predestined was to be conformed to the image of the Son, not just in His doctrine, but in all of His life. So let's get down to some uh, nitty-gritty here. I got a lot of verses. I might just read a lot of these. I wanted us to read a lot of these, but we might take a very long time to read all of these. I mean, most of this is just verses. So let's address some important areas where I think we can see some of these things come together and um, some things that I think we could consider, one, for our own church, uh, and then two, and I think more importantly, what we can consider in our own groups as we now meet together in our own discipleship groups and how this can instruct us in our groups and moving forward. So let's address something, though, first right off the bat, and that is this. Context of where discipleship has to begin has got to begin individually. And I'm not going to belabor this point because I just preached on this the other week. But this is not unrelated to the idea of being a self-ruled Christian, Right. If you, if you think, about, um, think about the two words, discipline and disciple, right? Those are similar for a reason, right? They're, they're both coming from a Latin phrase, right? We, we coined the term disciple after discipline. That, that's where we get that. So the disciple is ultimately some who is a disciplined person. So discipleship in our context, first and foremost, begins with us on an individual level. That there is a real aspect of growing up as a disciple that relates to your own ability, one, to commune with God in the Word and in prayer, and then to be a student of His Word and to be a servant of the church. I mean, that's just, that is the most, I mean, if that can't happen, that, that's, that is the first rung. 
can't commune with God in the Word and in prayer, um, the discipleship process ain't going to go anywhere. That individually, we have got to be a self-ruled people on that. And now that doesn't mean, hear me out on this, I want you to be encouraged by this, that doesn't mean everyone looks exactly the same in that, right? Not, not everyone is the, 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 the vetting 20, year, 20 years of prayer and the Word under his belt kind of person. That's fine. Just where are you at and where are you going needs to be the thought in, in your mind. And that needs to be on an individual level. I need to commune with God in the Word and in prayer. And I need to do that to the best of my ability, given my situation in life, given my time, given my stations that I am called to be in right now. So, and, and once again, we think about the Proverbs the other day. That's how the Proverbs holds out a disciplined people, is those who consider wisdom and instruction, and they don't push it aside. They're not fools. And uh, this includes, and listen, it, for Jackson, my own son, for you boys, younger Girls, Nicolette, all of you guys, for you as, as children, for you as young adults, for all of you in here, doesn't matter if you're married, kids, single, Lydia, Luis, older in age, not married, don't have kids running around the house anymore. This is important. This includes every single person, right? Discipleship does not get pushed off the shelf because I'm nine because and I've been baptized, and it doesn't get pushed away because, you know what, man? you know, and I'm not aging you, I'm just throwing a number out there, okay? I don't, don't want to think like, man, why would you do that? You know, it's not like, hey, 65, I'm just going to collect some retirement in Social Security and do the, you know, how John Piper says of, you know, listen, you look a 65, okay? You look younger. But, it, and it's not picking up and, and just walking the, 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 by the beach, picking up and listening to seashells all day. Right? It doesn't just, it's not like the prime time to be disciples when you're young and youthful and energetic and you're young, you know, father or mother, husband or wife. Brethren, it's, it's, it's the phrase you hear as you listen to other people. It's all of Christ for all of life. That means discipleship, whether you're nine or you're 90. And this has to include us as individuals to begin here. So, second, then, individual level would be our specific context then as men and women as it relates to families. So, I want to deal with this one first. I want to deal with the family first before I deal with the other one because that will cover all of us regardless if the family one immediately applies to us. But listen, even though you're not married, some of you are younger in marriage, older in marriage, kids are older, kids are younger. This does not matter. Don't let the stumbling block come in of our culture that says, if they don't match everything in my life right now, I can't relate to them. That's garbage. That is absolute garbage. The Bible says you actually relate better to people who are different from you because they are able to instruct you in the way you ought to go. So you might be single. You might have really young kids. You might have older kids. You might have no kids. Well, you have kids, but they're grown up. Or she's grown up. I'm going to stop trying to do that. It's very hard to remember all these, all these categories of people now. But you get what I'm saying is it, it doesn't, it, it does it, there is something to be learned from the Bible when it teaches all of those different stations in life, people in life. So don't tune out because I say family, I don't have a family right now. Oh, my kids are, you know, growing up or oh, my kids are older. My kids are young. I don't got to worry about them being, you know, 10 or 12 or whatever. Don't do that. So here is how I think it ought to relate in some specific examples of how we get to begin to apply this as it relates to the family. And first, men, I want to address us in the room. 
want to address us as men in the room, how this can begin to apply to our own lives and in discipleship, because this is just the fundamental reality. Adam was made, first and foremost, to be the leader, the protector, the provider, to be the king of God's creation. And Eve was supposed to come in and to serve him and to, and to aid him in taking dominion. Now, I, me and Sergio were uh, talking a little bit, or I don't know how we said this this morning, but, um, but it, it's not like that role for the woman is any lesser, right? He says the man and women are to go take dominion. They just do that dominion-taking process through two different tasks. But we have got to be able to recognize that there's a fundamental difference in reality to how men and women ought to accomplish that same goal, same thing they've been made for. And for men, listen, this is a very high calling when it relates to discipleship, and we need to hear all of these verses, and we need to take them all in for what they're worth. So here's a few of these. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. So where is discipleship going to begin in the family? Fathers, you guys are going to have to open your mouth and instruct your son and your family in the way. That is just the reality of it. That's, you were called to do that. You are a king in God's house. You have a responsibility that as your children grow up alongside of you and as your family ages with you, they ought to mature alongside of you. Right? It does no good to, uh, to hold up a king for how honorable of a man he is when his children and his family is a mess. A 20-year king is no great king when his children are off in the world like pagans and his wife is destitute of any kind of word and any kind of nourishment in their marriage. Right? So there is a reality that men, it begins here with your sons, with your daughters, with your wife, with your family as a whole, hear my son, your father's instruction, forsake not your mother's teaching. It is your job primarily in the family to lead out in this role. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That, and here's why Christ gave himself up for her, the example you ought to follow, that he might sanctify her, set her apart, make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Brethren, listen to that. I mean, that, that's, that's the high calling of men in their homes. Christ, as your example, here's how he's loved his bride. He gave himself up for her, and here's how, right? He wasn't a, uh, he wasn't a steward of the home, cooking and cleaning and, and doing all the tasks of the home, right? I'm not saying husbands don't do that or can't do that. They should. They should help out at home. But hear me out in that. That's not their primary role, but they do wear themselves out for something, and it is no small thing. They wear themselves out. They give up their life that their bride might be sanctified, that they would be presented in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Husbands, love your wives that way. Now, brethren, listen. All of you men in here, and I don't know where Michael is, 
Michael. <laughs> Heard. This does not mean you have to be Mr. Super Theologian. That's not in the text. Super theologian, meaning the smartest dude in the room. You don't need to be that guy. Because that's not what the text is calling you to. The text is calling you to a sacrificial laying down of your life through leading, listen to me on this, through leading your family so that primarily your wife, and what follows after this in a couple of other verses, your children would be presented as a beautiful bride without spot or blemish. And how do you do that? Brethren, you wash your wife and sanctify her and love her and treat her and lay down your efforts and your abilities in leading with the word, with your family. Now, brethren, listen. Have Christians obeyed that for the last 2,000 years and they were never a John Piper or they were never a John MacArthur or they never were a Vody Bauckham? Yes. Did they do it faithfully? Yes. Did they do it biblically? Yes. Did they do it with the kind of love and tenderness that Christ did it and with the kind of leadership that Christ leads out in His church? Oh, you better believe that they did. So brethren, don't, don't let an excuse come up or, or to let the stumbling block come up that says, well, I'm not the smart. You, brethren, you don't have to be the smartest guy. You don't. But you do need to be the leader. You do need to be, I was going to say the leaderist guy. You do need to be that man in your home. Maybe not the smartest, and that's fine, brethren. You don't, God's not called you to do that, but He has called you to lead. He has called you to how to lay your life down is to love your, life, your wife well and to present her with the Word. Now, yes, in times that means you are responsible, men. If you are responsible for sanctifying and washing your wife in the word, well, yeah, that means at times teaching. But brethren, is how well will your marriage go if the only thing you ever do with the Bible in your home <laughs> is, hey, uh, can you come sit down? I want to teach you something right now. It's important. Now, let me give you um, the doctrine of end times. <laughs> and every wife, well, maybe not everyone, but most are like, you know, like snooze, like kids are screaming in the other room. No, okay, that's... That's not it, but brethren, what is the word to you? It is, it is a light unto your feet, or, uh, or lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path, right? It's supposed to be something that guides you in every way that you walk. And brethren, you're going to have times where you're going to have to comfort your wife in the word. You're going to have to lead out into it. Not let your wife comfort herself. You're going to have to instruct your wife in the thing that you should do for your home. You're going to have to lead out into that. You're going to have to be Christ laying down his time and his ability to lead out in your home that way. You are going to have to be the one who applies the word to his kids and leads out in doing that in the home. And you can do that. Brethren, listen, you can do that in your home and not be the guy who's read every single book on his bookshelf. You can do that by simply loving the word of God and praying to God and then leading out in your home to present your family the best you can as spotless before Jesus Christ. And that's going to begin with your wife. So here we have another one um, here in 1 Peter. Likewise, husbands, very similar language, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Brethren, listen. Once again, I think this relates to, to, to Paul's own words, and Peter is putting it in different words. How do you wash 
your bride with the word, well, one way you do it, you live in an understanding way. You apply the word and how you treat your wife. Right? Do, you, do you live in light of your home in an understanding way with your wife? Or is it constant frustration, butting heads, your way, my way, the kid's way? Or is it one in which you're able to lead in such a way where you not only lead strongly, but you lead in an understanding way with your wife, understanding that the Bible holds out to her that she is the weaker vessel, not lesser vessel, but a weaker vessel. And brethren, listen, if that's God's uh, vessel, one in which he says is an heir of the grace of life, brethren, if you... Uh, if I order a package and you deliver it to me and the package said handle with care and you kick it and throw it, sorry, Michael, and you kick a package at your front door, um, I'm not going to be very happy with you, right? You, it said handle with care. And brother, we need to recognize this. We are talking about our brides. We are talking about our wives. We are talking about those who are going to inherit eternal life with us. There is a way to lead that is firm, and there is a way to lead with firmness that also comes alongside of it. Understanding handles with care. And that is one way in which you begin to wash your wife and sanctify her in the Word. How will your marriage and things begin to transform and to continue if you begin to live with your wife in an understanding way? Brethren, you know what happens when your wife lives with you in an understanding way? She follows your lead. She will follow your example. She will follow your voice. And we need to be convinced of that. Here's another one, wives. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. That's Colossians 3, 18 through 21. So here Paul again rapid fire through these again. But here he says, husbands, love your wives. And once again, do not be harsh with them. Brother, and that is the weaker vessel you handle with absolute care. You lead, you wash, you present, you lay down your life through leadership, but you take care that you do so in an understanding way and you take care that you do it in a way that is not harsh. Brother, what, what person do you want to follow who just berates you? Time in and time out. Every time. It's like, uh, it's, it's like the, you know, the coach in high school nobody liked because it wasn't the coach coming in and discipling you and how to be a better player. It was any time you got the screw up, it was another opportunity to let you know how bad you screwed up. And I hated that. I mean, I'm sure you guys have had some, some whether it's a teacher or a coach or a, you know, a parent or a relative, and all it is is berating. All it is is being harsh and that is not the way in which you disciple someone to follow after you and to lead, uh, and to lead them. And this goes not only husbands for your wives. I've touched a little bit uh, of this, but this goes with your children, right? Um, it's, not a it's not an accident that it says, Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. But it also follows up with fathers. Do not provoke your children lest they, lest they uh, become discouraged. We need to recognize that children, very similarly, are those we are to handle with care. 
and the way that our children and our wives are going to respond to our leadership in the home, our discipleship in the home, is going to be in part how we apply the word to them through how we speak and through how we act. Yes, the word has got to be there. It's got to be the fundamental thing guiding your discipleship. But the word itself will fall void and empty if it is not met with somebody who has embodied that word in their actions and in their life. So we need to be very, very careful. But at the same time, we need to be very, very convinced God has called us into that. This is our task in our role. And I'll tell you this, it is also where you will find your joy. If that is where God has stationed you, the way that he made you was to find joy in doing this, brethren, don't think for a second this task will not produce the gift of joy and of a plentiful harvest for you. Believe it and do it. So here's another one. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And once again, there's a good book on this called The Paideia of God uh, by Doug Wilson. And he does a very good job of showing this does not mean you're super theologian when it comes to this. But you know what it does mean? The way that you lead is the way that you, one, are enculturated into Christianity and how you do that for your family, right? Is your life marked, whether you're the smartest in the room or not the smartest in the room, by one who is enculturating his family in Christian worship and in Christian life? That's what he's telling you to do is to, to, rate, to bring up your kids in the discipline and in the culture or the instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, that's, brethren, these are, this is a high calling, but this is something that we need to be convinced that just as Christ laid down his life for us as the church, will, will Christ mete out his reward for his suffering? Yes. Well, yes, right, thank you, right? The, those mis- missionaries who they, 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 they cried out to and they said, is, is Christ not worthy, right, to receive the reward for his sufferings, right? Is he not worthy? And brethren, he most certainly is. Do you think you will be worthy of the reward for your, lo- your labor and your toil of patiently and, and gently, but with firmness and leadership, discipling your wife and your children? Brethren, raise up your children in the, in the discipline and culture of the Lord. See what happens, right? What does God give to us? Our children. What does God give to us if we honor our wives the way Christ honors us as his body and we lead out in our family in a way that is understanding and not harsh, brethren, you will have gained your bride, pure and spotless, for that final day. (laughs) That's what it's laid out for you. I mean, that's your reward. And this one comes for instruction for all of us then, church. And this is something that we have to enculturate here as a church within our discipleship within the homes that is vital. And, and ladies, this is important for you too. This is not just a principle for the men. You have to believe that the men are bound to do this. The men are made to do this. That men ought to do this, right? What kind of women ought you to be if the men are lazy in doing this? Well, you be a Deborah and you get the men riled up to do something, right? You, do you, this is not for the women to just go, well, we'll let the guys, you know, sit back and we'll see how it goes, right? Now, I'm not saying you berate, right? 
I'm not saying you criticize, but I am saying is you encourage and you do whatever you can to facilitate your husband being the leader in his home. Because this is not just some formal thing God set up to go, men will lead and women will follow. This is how creation has has been structured. Listen, Listen to why this is such an important principle for the men to be, let, to be leading out in something like this, and why it's the responsibility of men and their families to do this. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace and to the snare of the devil. First Timothy two, uh, or excuse me, First Timothy three two through seven. Now you're probably thinking in your mind, that's a text about pastors. So. Why would you say that's a call for men? Well, brethren, listen. In that text, back in verse 1, Paul says, if any man desires to be an overseer, what? He desires a good thing. What ought the man to be like in the church who desires such a thing? Well, he ought to be that kind of, listen, not that kind of pastor. Let's get that thought out of our minds. Oh, this is what a pastor needs to be like. No, brethren, this is what men need to be like that qualifies someone on a most fundamental level to even be considered to be a pastor. And, it's, and notice most of that is all character and the ability to lead one's life and household well. And that is the responsibility of the man. And that is the mark for the men then who will lead the church. It is not as if that people get, men get appointed in the church and then they ought to become and strive after those things. When, when, when Paul tells Titus to go appoint elders in every city and instruct the men to carry on the faith, you know what Titus is looking out into his church and you know what he should be seeing? I see a lot of really good faithful men self-ruled, self-disciplined, households are in order. Now let's see the ones who desire to teach and actually have a gifting to teach. I mean, do you see where the, the, stand, like the, the, the fundamental uh, gate of that uh, search begins? It begins by looking out at the men in general and going, all right, I got men like this. Now who desires to actually be one, right? Because not everyone who's like that ought to be like that. But he's got to find a man who does that. That ought to be the conduct and the character of every Christian man within the church. <clears throat> Brother, that is, I mean, that, there, there is just a reality to that. An absolute reality to that. That the husband is not just the practical means by which the family ought to look to for its guidance. That is how God has built humanity. Men, that's how you were made. And if you want to embrace manhood, then you need to embrace what the Bible holds out through you in following Jesus Christ and his example and leading out in those things. And that's, that is where in a very specific context in the family where that needs to begin. Now, um, 
that obviously has lots of implications for women in the family. And I'm not trying to even skip over those for you women at all, but I'm really trying to emphasize what needs to be primary, right? What needs to be absolutely primary are those things within our families. And I think the rest will inevitably follow. Yes, there's all those things in the scriptures of women submit to your wives as the church submits unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does he say? In everything, right? Not in some things, not in small things, not in one big thing that you let slip by and slide by, in everything. And there's all those instructions in that. But brethren, the, the, the way that this reality, this fundamental reality works is the men lead out in the discipleship of their homes with their wives and with their children. And this will bleed in... Um, I think, to uh, a couple of practical things uh, right here at the end, too. So let me address the last thing, and then I want to address how we can begin viewing this as men and women and how it's going to kind of go look in everything. So last one right here. Third would be this. What does this look like amongst men and women in the church? And let me read a couple of verses here for you. This one is coming from Titus. This is going to be my primary text for this because, right, it's, we can talk about the family, which is good. The church is often built up of families, but it is, it is most, at, a, at an even more basic principle, is built up of men and women. So how do we as men and women begin to be discipled and disciple one another in the church? So this is Titus 2, 1 through 8. But as for you, speaking of Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in the faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, be, excuse me, behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may not be put to shame, may not be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So let's ask for a moment then how this relates to men and women within the church, because I think this really gets into um, I think the most practical thing for us, yes, the family is individually, yes, very practical for every one of us in this room. Yes, the family, because most of us are in a family. And if you're not, those things ought to prepare you to disciple you in the way of having a family in the future. But as we meet in our own groups, as we meet in men and women's discipleship groups and, and, and in smaller groups, how, can we, how, how does this process of discipleship relate to how we do discipleship within those groups, right? How do we do discipleship as men in our groups, as we meet together as men, and how does that relate to you women meeting in your smaller discipleship groups and discipling one another? So for women, I want to begin, I want to begin here. So you guys notice here that uh, what he begins to draw out there, I think it's in verse 2 or 3, I just have it written in my notes. But he says here, older women, what? Likewise are to be what? Reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And then here, here is what is being clarified or drawn out as to what older women 
in their character and conduct should be instilling to other women, what he says, younger women in the church, what they are to teach. He says, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So if I were to ask, and I'll, and I'll ask uh, women in here because I'm going to do the same thing with the men. Let me ask the question, what is the fundamental purpose of your guys' discipleship groups as you guys meet together? For what purpose? For, for the women in here, as you guys meet in your discipleship groups, according to those verses in Titus, what is the fundamental purpose or result of your time together? What should it be? What, what's the goal? Right. How to live out the Christian life as a godly woman, as a mature woman, right? Uh, that, that's it, right? That, that is at its fundamental reality what should occur. And that goes right back to what we just spent all that time in the beginning doing of just establishing what discipleship is. It's that you ought to imitate older women. And yes, we can always consider an older woman in age, but we also need to consider older in the sense of also knowing more, having something to impart to younger or less mature women in this. Because obviously... That doesn't always just apply age-wise, and it would never would have in the church because people would have been converted at young ages, older ages, all over the place. But I think there is something to the older, younger mentality here in Titus because of what should naturally be the ideal. As a church grows up, there really should be older women who can actually teach the younger women. Right? I know age is not the only thing in this, but it is something in here to be said of, of what that should look like. And I'm only holding that out for us as something that should encourage us to grow in our discipleship and grow in our maturity so that, you know, 20, 30, 40 years down the church, we really have an older subset of the church, women particularly, who can and do teach the younger women. And it is not that we have a bunch of older women 40 years from now who are all babes in the faith and never learned anything, and all the younger women are having to teach them. There's a reality here that that would be the case. But the most, the, the most fundamental reality would be this. Women, as you guys meet for your groups, whether it's you know, during the week or on you know, whatever, whatever day you guys meet together, your goal in your groups should be that the older women or somebody is imparting something to you all or vice versa. That the goal of it would be you grow up in maturity as a Christian woman, that you be taught as he says. I mean, let's, let's, lift off, let's list off these things. What are some things that you ought to be learning as women and growing in as you guys meet in your discipleship groups? What are some of the things that he lists? I know I'm asking for really easy answers, but I just really want us to see it's like, it's that easy. Reverence and behavior. Conduct, character, reverence, behavior, right? Uh, What do you mean? What else? I mean, I don't have anything else to add to that. What What else is in there? Right. Yeah. 
building the home, right? And, and for us in here, we have a lot of young moms in here. We don't have like a, a bunch of moms with, you know, older kids who have spent all that time building their home. But none, nonetheless, there is something for someone to say, here's how I have began to build my home. Here's how you can build your home. Here's how you can do this. Here's how you can do that. It's, it's, it's to the building up of your home, right? What else? Submissive to who? Right. First and foremost, submissive to who? Submissive to their own husbands. And for what purpose? In order that what? Right. That the word of God does not become reviled. So for, for all the things that um, can happen in discipleship groups, all the good things that can, that can come about in them through reading and through studying and all these different things, there is a fundamental reality that uh, the, the goal and purpose of women coming together and for you guys to come together in your groups and be discipled in your groups, one, and, and I'm going to say this, I am going to caveat this, but I want to say it first and foremost this way, is not to just grow in your understanding of theological knowledge. Right? It's not even listed in here. Now, do women need to know theology? Well, you better believe women need to know theology. Ought women... Uh, ought we ought to train our daughters and our wives and our women to be able to handle the word accordingly? Well, of course we ought to do that. But what, is the, what are all the characteristics of the godly woman in here? It is not that she's able to spout off a bunch of doctrine. Now, that might correlate to some of these, but that is not listed there. In fact, the, the way that you guys would, would, would know over the, the years that discipleship is happening in your groups is that you're maturing in these areas in your life. So that the fundamental reality of women meeting together with other women is around this, that the women are teaching one another how to be better women in Christ. And that sounds very simple, right? It's not, that's not like a very uh, complex thing, but it, it can become very complex if we don't just take the simplicity of it, right? And uh, I... I think of just like examples I've seen over time, examples I've read about, but of discipleship simply taking place where an older woman will bring younger ladies over to the house, whether they're single or whether they're, you know, they're just newer moms or newer women in the faith. And you know what they do the whole time? They do, and I'm not knocking this. Ladies, you guys have gone through some really great books, so hear me out, not knocking this. But you know what they do, they do during that time? I've heard all these stories. They come over and they're teaching them how to cook. They're coming over and they're teaching them how to manage a household. Well, they're coming over and they're showing themselves how to be a submissive wife, how to be one who is, and I think that self-control there is important, a disciplined homekeeper, a disciplined woman, disciplined in character, disciplined in keeping the household in order and honoring her husband and not reviling the word of God. And that's done around the simple task of, let me show you how to cook. Let me show you how to keep the house. Let's, let's talk about your kids. Let me show you how to raise your kids. Let me show you how to discipline your kids. The, of, of just things being that simple and yet that profound in the Christian life of how women grow up in discipleship into the image of Christ. Ladies, it's, it's that simple. It's, it's that simple and it's that basic of coming alongside one another and imitating somebody that can show you what to imitate or vice versa. I mean, I, I hope that honestly for you ladies, that's actually something that is relieving, right? That it's not some grand, you know, complicated, you know, I need a syllabi 
and I need to give people papers and, and, and books and tests and quizzes and all these different things. It's just, let's live life one another and let me impart to you the, the, the godly life of a Christian woman to you. Right? It's, it's, it's something that simple. So let me just kind of state this one before I get into any questions here at the end, that the primary purpose of discipleship for women among women is to simply make mature, godly women who are blameless in conduct and in character and who are masters of the domain God has given them, and that is the home. That, that, would, that would be your mark. That would be your goal. That would be the purpose of you guys entering into discipleship with one another. So this second one, last one, would be for men. Now men, let's look right back here to Titus 2 because this instructs us right here as well. Right? Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. They are to teach what is good and so train the young, or excuse me, uh, uh, I jumped to the verse with, excuse me, likewise urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, sound speech. So men, the same thing. But notice, notice here that there's, there's, a, there's a few other additional aspects to this that are slightly different than women. Right? There's a lot of this that bleeds over where what ought we to do, men, as we meet together, as we come together around the word, as we come together around discipleship, it should be that we are teaching younger men uh, or teaching younger men through older men how to be godly Christian men. And how they ought to do that? Well, the biggest ones right here that jump out are the same thing with the women teaching the younger women. It is to be godly in conduct and in character. It is to be someone who is self-controlled. It is someone who is sound in the faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now that's important because that sound in the faith, and then when it comes afterwards, of showing yourself in all respects to be a model of good works in your teaching, show integrity, there is an aspect that not only in discipleship of men, ought men be pressing and forming one another to say, brother, let me show you how to walk as a man of God. Let me show you how to walk as a husband. Let me show you how to walk as a father. But we have the teaching aspect. We're just, and we're getting right back to that central point again, that men ought to be the, the, the bearers of this task uh, in, in the church and in their homes that they ought to show themselves in all respects to be a good uh, model in their works and in their teaching to have integrity, that there is a soundness and a steadfastness, that they are not one who is just constantly swerving in the faith, but they know the faith. And so for us men, as we come together, I would say the same thing for us. The primary means for us, and this could be done in different ways, is not simply to just open up a, a book or a Bible and discuss theology, but it is to push and to challenge and to sharpen and to mold not only how we read, how we understand, how we apply scriptural teaching and doctrine, but also how we live our life, how we walk as men, how we operate and function as fathers and husbands. And that, that basic mold for men and for women into the families into the individual i think is very important for us 
because it, it can be, like I said, it could be, it could be very easy that over time, that, that, that central reality of discipleship is imitating one that ought to be imitated gets lost. And discipleship can become no more than simply a, a formal reality in our lives. And that is something that I, uh, I, I want us to, to avoid and I don't want us to get entrapped in. So um, let me pull up just a few more things, make sure that I, uh, I got everything that I, I really want to address right here. But um, does anyone have any questions so far that we could answer, discuss any thoughts in regards to those things? Well, let me let me say it. Let me let me say a few as we close, and then if there's any questions or any conversations or you know discussion we can have on this, I think we can have more. Um, but I I think as I have thought about this and leading out the church and leading alongside of Manny and Nick and trying to do the best that we possibly can to make sure that the church is being discipled in this way is for us to be good examples of that for you as the church. And uh, this means, church, too, that there is a, um, not just a top-down function of us to you, instructing you in the way, but there ought to be a level of imitation and uh, of display of example from us to you. And you as the body actually have a responsibility to uphold those, us to those standards, right? This is not a one-way street within the church of, you all better follow exactly what I say and what I do. It's, no, we ought to be good imitators of the faith for you to follow in an, uh, in an example of. And that uh, is something that the church um, holds up and exhorts and encourages their own pastors to, to do and to be. So I want to challenge you as the church in that as well, uh, to think about um, discipleship along those lines as well. A few other practical things, and one is, men, one thing that has uh, been a big benefit for me over the years is being able to distill what I'm learning either in my own study or through other men and instilling that into my family, into my wife, and into just my, my own worship with my family and my own time with my family. Uh, there, there will come times and seasons in your, in your family and in your life where there's going to be a desire for your wife to want to learn and to grow. And those are good and right things. And she needs to be able to look to you to fulfill those obligations primarily. Now, that does not mean you are the only means by that. But that should be the primary avenue to which that kind of thing happens. You think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says that I don't allow for a woman to teach. They ought to remain silent. If they have anything they want to learn, that they would go to their husbands at home and learn. Now, that's obviously not the only command in there. Can wives learn from the pastors of their church? Well, of course they can. And that would be another godly way, another correct biblical way for a woman in the church who wants to grow and desire to learn to be able to function that way. But I've seen it in the seminary context. I've seen it in... Uh, book movements and in Christian conference movements, this movement towards um, women carrying on the load of thinking they have to be theologians 
and to, and to raise up other theologian women. And it becomes this very lopsided, and I think very imbalanced kind of thing where now no longer the, the, the responsibility of the husband for that task is being fulfilled in the home. Rather, it's being filled through some side ministry or some book ministry or some podcast ministry. And that ought not to be. It ought to be where the husband is the primary functioner of, let me at least help lead and guide, hopefully explain this. And if, listen, men, there are still things I don't know. I, I mean, you want to open up a couple Bible passages right now? I'm going to tell you, I don't know what that means. I'll get back to you on it, but I don't know what it means right now. So I want you to hear me out on that. There will also be times where you hear something and go, you know, I don't, I don't know what that means. I don't know if I could teach that part very well, but let's go talk to our pastors and ask, and maybe my, the pastor can teach me or instruct me or instruct us, and then I can instruct that to you. But man, one thing that you do have right now that you can begin to do within your families is this. You are all learning something from somebody else right now. Doctrine, conduct, whatever. You go home and you distill that down for your wife and then for your family and you feed your wife the word and you wash her in the word and you do the best to your ability to with what you have. I mean, brethren, is, is God going to hold you to a higher standard than that with what you got? He's not. He's, he's not going to go, hey, man, why didn't you open up that systematic theology on Aaron's shelf? It's like, well, I don't know how to read it. It's in Latin. It's like, you know, it's like God's not going to hold you to some standard that you were never even able to do or even able to accomplish. What he's going to hold you accountable for is what has he placed before you in your lap? What has he given you? What talent has he given you? Brother, he might have one talent for you right now. Just be faithful with it. It's like, you know, you brothers are going through Romans. We're going, we're about to finish up a book. It's like, you know... Manny comes to me and he's like, brother, I want to go home and I really want to be able to pour into my wife. They'd be like, all right, well, what do you think of the last five pages we just answered all those questions for? Well, I really feel like I answered those questions. Well, great, brother, go, go home and share that with your wife. That, that's your talent you've been entrusted with. Just be faithful with that. You don't need to know everything right now. That, that's not your task. Your task is to be faithful in the present, that you'd be faithful with more in the future. So Jesus said, how can I entrust you to be faithful a lot if you're not faithful with the little that you've been given? So brethren, some of us have more than others and that's okay, but be faithful now to do that in your home, to take the word of which what you have and to teach it to the best of your ability, to distill it to your family. And another one would be uh, this is um, for us in our groups, this is I think a great reminder for us just how important it is for us to make sure that our discipleship is oriented around this idea of imitation. That as, as we meet together and as we come together, our primary concern is how can I instill maturity by imitating godliness for this person or these persons, for this woman or these women, for this man or for, the, for these men. And I want us to just really be convinced of that, that Yes, learning. Yes, books. Not knocking those. Doing one right now. Ladies, some of you have finished up a book, in a book. But fundamentally, what is the goal and the reality and the purpose and the meaning of us women discipling women is for you guys to grow up in godly character and womanhood. And men, it is for you to grow up into godly character as men. And part of that responsibility is for you to learn over the years how to not only be a good man, but also be a good steward with the word that you've been entrusted to.